They say there's no light that doesn't cast a shadow, but the people who say that have never been outside at noon on a summer day. It's a fleeting moment, but it's there. Everyone says it's always darkest just before dawn, and that too is a fleeting moment. I collect these moments, you see. Snapshots in time, meaningless by themselves. I'm the detective who stands between worlds for cases that span the spaces between spaces. These are the Gossamer Gumshoe Files. Episode 4, Made of Orleans, Part 1. April 7th. I was still getting a bearing on the supernatural community of Philadelphia. Spirits I'd always known. The other witches and sorcerers I knew full well. But with the death of Maria the Conqueror, werewolf alpha of Fairmount Park in northeastern Philadelphia, I was suddenly aware of a bigger picture than I'd been before. More importantly, it was a picture that the paternal union of police was sending a message to. We know where you live and we are the city. I didn't like that message. They weren't the city. The city was concrete and steel, and the people were friendly enough and busted their asses off their entire lives with blood, sweat, and tears to make a living in a world that was not kind. They were the city. And the fact that those people looked very different from most of the officers that smacked them around gave me pause. And the fact that those same officers saw every spirit and supernatural entity that existed in this town as a threat to their supremacy. Not because of their actions, but because they had fangs or floated instead of walked. Yeah, that made me a little nettled. The case of Maria the Conqueror was closed. But I wasn't done with the PUP. None of us were. In the end, I woke up every morning, and the little voice in the back of my head kept saying, When the last hope falls, the detective would remain to punish the guilty, even if it would mean taking on the entire city. This was before the fall, but even then I knew. This was something ancient and necessary whether I'd like to admit it or not, and I could no more ignore what I had seen or what I knew than I could deny the blood in my body and the bones that held me up. So the corkboard started. All long-term cases involve a corkboard. And with yarn, index cards, and photos, I began putting together what I knew about PUP leadership. It wasn't much. Detectives Michael and Markham, M&M, &M, were at the bottom, of course. They were the best of the worst, and as such wouldn't be given the rough jobs. The board was mostly index cards with question marks, photos of Maria the Conqueror's deceased body, and a piece of yarn leading back to PUP Hall Number 7 head Nelson Calhoun. Former vice cop in the 70s, one of the few never busted on corruption charges or possession. 
I'm not saying he ran the PUP like a drug cartel, but I am saying he'd arranged a series of union rules, provisions, and legal mechanisms to make firing any of his officers nearly impossible. And if you wanted to go past firing and into prosecuting, it was like two nightmares packed back to back. I had my own aged PUP handbook pinned to the board with the necessary pages up from my own years on the force. Omerta was in full effect, and you maintained a blue line with your fellows at all times. Nobody on the force had ever done anything wrong. There were no corrupt cops in Philadelphia. And everyone agreed, even when someone was beaten down in front of them for the crime of speaking out of turn, that clearly the man had threatened their fellow officers first. And these were the rules no matter what, no questions asked, because Nelson Calhoun had fought monsters for so long he'd patterned his organization after the drug dealers he'd hunted. Because in his eyes, this was the best way to get justice. I regret every minute of my time as a police officer. I heard a knock at my door. I hid the corkboard in my closet. After Eminem's visit to my office last week about the Carmichael case, I wasn't taking any chances. So I took a moment to brush off my clothes, and I stomped a little awkwardly with my new orthotic boots and their lovely new inner soles, and I opened my door. Some spirits are bigger, smaller, grander, and lesser. This one was truly grand. She stood in full plate armor, her power emanating off her like an incredible wave, though she chose to stand at only five foot two, the same height she'd had in life. The spirit of Joan of Arc, the Maid of Orleans, stood before me, her dark hair visible under her helm and a red mark on her cheek, and I was shocked. I blinked rapidly and shook my head. No, I was, in fact, still in the presence of the spirit of Joan of Arc. In her hand was a folio with all the information I usually require before I take a case. She said... Detective, may I come in? I gave her a short bow, which she returned and motioned for her to enter. Joan of Arc sat down in front of my desk in my old but surprisingly comfy guest chair, and I closed my door, walked around, and sat down in front of her. My French was rusty, but I managed to say, Bonjour, madame. Je suis un Américain, mais je comprends un petit français. Joan of Arc gave me a soft smile and said, It is all right. I speak modern English perfectly well, and I appreciate the courtesy. But you do not need to trouble yourself. I said, And to be fair, that was some hot garbage French, wasn't it? Joan of Arc nodded and said, Truly, but again, it is the thought that counts. I did my best to relax. I said, Well, um, uh, Joan? She confirmed, saying, You may call me Joan. I nodded and I said, Thank you, Joan. How may I help you? 
Saint Joan, also known as Joan of Arc, the Maid of Orleans, said, I was not sure who to go to. As the saint of soldiers, military personnel, prisoners, captives, and martyrs, this was decidedly outside of my purview. However, I asked around with a simple question, where to find a detective in Philadelphia, and after speaking to the only trickster in the area I trusted, one Siobhan O'Malley, cutting away for a moment, the fae from my last case had forwarded the spirit of a saint to me. I hadn't seen that one coming. St. Joan shrugged, losing her words for a moment, and finally said, Well... She told me that you, detective, were the one to speak to about such matters. You see, my statue has been stolen. And that got my attention. The Philadelphia Museum of Art is known mostly outside of Philadelphia for two things. Beautiful artwork and the statue of Rocky at the top of the steps. Everybody who goes to the museum does the Rocky Run and thrusts their fists in victory, even if they're a ten-ton palooka who's never run a day in their life. Less known along Kelly Drive, right by the museum, is the gilded statue of Joan of Arc. All who drive past drive under the auspices of this glorious woman in full armor, on horseback, waving her banner aloft. I look through the file. The statue was apparently gone. She wanted me to find it. It was pretty straightforward. So I started with the basics. It's, uh, it's fairly noticeable. Someone snuck out an object that big, and nobody's noticed yet. Joan nodded, saying it was under the cover of night, and a grand illusion has been put in its place. It will only last another day or so. But for now, to all outside appearances, my form still stands above Kelly Drive, guarding the path to the art museum. I considered that. A statue is not just a statue. It symbolizes something. Gargoyles weren't just part of Notre Dame's gutter system. They were placed in all forms of Gothic architecture as part of the myth of the Gargouille. Gargouille. I'm not going to butcher any more French. A dragon with bat-like wings. St. Romanus killed the beast, but couldn't destroy the head, so it was mounted on a nearby church, and its presence would ward off evil spirits. In modern use, the gargoyle not only acted as a way to divert water, but to be the guardian of a place of power, generally a place of worship. I leaned forward and I asked, Joan, you're telling me that a piece of you was literally designed to defend the art museum? Joan of Arc smiled and said, Not just me. Many great legends are placed in areas that need defending. I just have the honor of being coated in gold to defend a place of great beauty. Now, it's not like I'm not always there. I just felt it when it was gone. It's like a part of me had been removed. I was handling 
a bureaucratic mix-up in heaven, and next thing I know, it's like a piece of my toe is gone, if that makes any sense. I didn't like it. A gold-gilded statue could have been stolen by a sorcerer willing to drop an illusion simply to get the gold gilding off and make a ton of money. That could happen, sure, but Joan of Arc was the local defense of something ancient and powerful if the saint herself had felt it when it was removed. I said, I've worked with a lot of spirits over the years. None of them have ever said anything about you or the art museum. Joan of Arc said, In battle, the first and best line of defense is your enemy simply not knowing where you are. And when you strike, your offense is tenfold better because you were not where they wanted you to be. Is that not also true of your profession? I considered the corkboard in my closet and nodded. Okay, Joan, I said, considering that. You know my rates? Joan of Arc said, $50 an hour, $400 a day, effectively, plus expenses. You will receive payment from the local archdiocese. I nodded slowly. I didn't expect a saint to stiff me on the bill, after all. Okay, I said. I'll get to work. Joan of Arc held out her ghostly hand, and we shook. I felt a shock passing between us, nothing I wasn't used to. Contracts between witches and spirits usually take the form of handshake agreements or other similar gestures, as it's hard to do a written contract with such a being. But now I was bound to my word with magic, and so was she. Thus it was thus it would always be. Joan said, I have very little presence in the city so long as my statue is not in its place. Sadly, the only thing left I can do is hire you. I wish you the best of luck. And with that, she faded away, and I left my office. Catching a bus to the Philadelphia Art Museum wasn't exactly hard. It's one of the city's major attractions, after all, and it's in a beautiful spot. It's Greco-Roman pillars sitting up, announcing itself to the world as a fine place of dignity and culture, matched with the rocky statue that announced its rough-and-tumble roots. I'd always admired the juxtaposition. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And if you've ever had an older brother, you know that they would kick your ass, but they would be the only one allowed to kick your ass. And as it was, they'd be classy about it. In any case, just beyond the art museum, Kelly Drive is one of the major roadways coming out of Center City, forming from the Ben Franklin Parkway around this monumental museum and into a route that cuts explicitly along the Schuylkill River at points moving around but rarely connecting with I-76. Boathouses and parks dot the landscape as you ride into the heart of Fairmount Park. It was 4 p.m. now and I had time. What I also had was a problem. 
My presence tends to attract the supernatural. They could just feel me. And the Fairmount Park werewolf pack was still transitioning following the death of Maria the Conqueror. There could be trouble there. If they decided they didn't like my face. But I wasn't going down Kelly Drive yet. I wouldn't have to. I was at the start, just past the Philadelphia Museum of Art, looking at what appeared to be the gorgeous golden statue of the Maid of Orleans. The question was how to go about this. I could tell by the way the sun struck the gilded frame without casting the right shadow for the time of day, and by the smell of copper in the air, that this was certainly the illusion that Joan of Arc had described. But I didn't want people to realize it was an illusion. If I broke it while investigating it, then someone would call the police. And if they called the police, the PUP would get involved. And you know something? The PUP might solve the case. But they'd kill absolutely everyone involved, no questions asked, because they'd made it clear that was their stance going forward. And I couldn't have that on my hands. So I got off the bus at the art museum, and I walked around to the base of the statue. It intersected at four streets, though the name changed depending on the direction you went. And De Harnoncourt Drive one way, North 25th Street the other, both connected but terminating, Pennsylvania Avenue going one way, Kelly Drive going the other, powerful crossroads, that one. And then I realized what I should have guessed from the beginning. This was a liminal space, a crossroads, a thin place where a demon could pass through. Philadelphia was full of strange, bizarre intersections. Someone had even made a t-shirt showing off the most ridiculous intersections that it had and some of the most evil, terrible spirits that I knew like the rat that considered itself to be the city, had passed through them. But this intersection was sacred. It was defended by the statue of Joan of Arc herself, the symbol of French freedom and the birthplace of American freedom in the middle of a truly powerful intersection. The stakes were higher now. You didn't steal a statue like that for the gold. The gold was symbolic at best, a part of a greater ritual. You stole a statue like that to remove a powerful protection from the region. You did it to summon a great terror from beyond. And I looked out to the Schuylkill River and I knew it was only a matter of time now. If Joan of Arc was not restored to her rightful place, a great evil would rise. I was a witch of the worlds. I could feel it coming. So I started searching. The trick was to figure out how to interact with where the statue had been without, say, putting my hand through it and revealing to everyone it wasn't there anymore. I walked around it and I shifted my perspective. I've mentioned in earlier case files that bilocation is one of the hardest tricks for those who stand between worlds. I know how to do it, but I'm not the best at it. 
I'm a witch, not a sorcerer. My power comes from going with the natural flow of energies in the world and scooping, dipping, shifting. It's like using the sails on an ancient vessel. You can go against the wind if you arrange them right, but you're better off shifting into the direction of it if you can. A sorcerer just takes power and consumes it. A lot of witches will tell you that is the path of evil. I don't agree. For better or for worse, sometimes you need a sorcerer to be angry and get shit done. Other times you need a witch to feel the flow and understand the world. Two sides, same coin. Push and pull. Destructive and creative. Both vital, both dangerous, both in balance on a good day. And in a place like this one, a liminal space at a four-way crossroads that became an eight-way crossroads due to the way that the roads were designed and they terminated and changed, it was easy enough to follow the flow and be in two places. For me, it's all about location, location, location. You could call me a real estate agent in that regard, just, you know, with magic. So I stood outside the statue with one body, and I stood in the statue with the other, fully aware that anything that happened to one body would happen to the other. It's a dangerous game, by locating. So I stood inside the illusory statue, and I took a look around. The thing that bothered me about the missing statue was that it had been wrought iron and gold gilded. That was heavy. You don't just pick up and carry off something like that. Magic had been used to disguise the location, but magic had also been used to pick up the statue and move it. But where to? It would have been late at night, long after everyone had gone home. I looked down Kelly Drive, and I thought about my options. There were only two groups of people who could have seen something, and those were the Fairmount Park werewolves and Joan of Arc herself. But she'd already said that she'd seen nothing. Inside the illusion, I could smell the magic. It was smooth like butter. For a moment, there was deja vu, and I felt the world shift and then it was gone. I didn't, I wasn't going to forget that. Something had changed and then not changed. I looked around. Just another, just another day in Philadelphia, huh? Oh, that was strange. Well, there was witchcraft at work here, that was certain, and that was a problem, because I knew most of the witches in town. The deja vu was strange, but the witchcraft I understood. If I was going to walk to a minor coven meeting and wildly declare, J'accuse, I was going to need something to back it up, and I could feel the flow of the illusion, and it was familiar, but I couldn't place it. Same with the deja vu I just felt. I was going to need to talk to the Fairmount Park werewolves. Divided into east and west sections by the Schuylkill River, 
Fairmount Park was a sizable location which could only be considered one location due to the bridges passing between them. I took a moment to retie my orthotic boots and I gave a certain tall werewolf by the name of Derek Ball the call. He responded on the third ring saying, Detective! Not a good time! I said, Statue of Jonah Ark was stolen. Think you and the pack might have seen something? Silence speaks loudly in my business. I said, Last I checked, you don't do illusions. More silence. I said, Bald, I'm gonna take a walk in the park and I'll have some questions for you. We're friends, right? Bald said, I paid you to find my wife, dead or alive. You found her dead and you gave me the story on why she died and who was responsible. It was a business transaction, nothing more. And you were paid well for your services. He was right. I couldn't complain, he'd paid me a good five grand for what ended up being a day's work. I said, Bald, you werewolves are in tune with nature, right? That's your thing? Well, I can tell you what's going on at the statue. Something wants to use this intersection to do something real bad. And I need to start asking some questions. Are you really telling me that we're not friends right now? He hung up. And that meant I was going into werewolf territory to question some people who didn't want to give me answers in what was going to be a no-holds-barred nightmare. Because Philadelphia didn't have time. That statue needed to go back, and soon, because whatever wanted to pop out of the Schuylkill River wasn't going to just wait around. It wanted into this place to cause trouble. So, there I was, walking along the sidewalk to make my way to Boathouse Row, past the Fairmount Dam where people were fishing, past the Fountain of Seahorses, it was a cloudy day, and I could feel the rain coming. There it was. That feeling of... Deja vu again. Like something had happened, and I missed it. I pulled my coat and hat closer to me as I made my way past the boathouses toward the greater park beyond. So imagine my surprise when two joggers started keeping pace with me in their running routine. Seeing as they stopped to a walk in their green tracksuits, they weren't exactly being subtle. Fellas, I said. I've got no time for games today. One of the tracksuits said to me, Bald said you'd say that. He also said you were reasonable. The two men walked around in front of me and stood there. We are the Alphas of Fairmount Park. I took a closer look at them. I said, Bolt said tradition meant that they were one man and one woman. The elf to the left of me said, The rules were meant for a king and queen. They were not the ancient rules and were in fact instituted 50 years ago. And they were not intended for such things as sexuality outside hetero norms. It was agreed that new norms could be instituted. 
considered that and said, Ah, not used to disagreements like that. Usually most con groups connected to the supernatural are counterculture as fuck. It always seems to come with the turf. The alpha to the right said, Our traditions are affected by years of people naturally becoming werewolves amongst the normies of the region. They come with their own ideas and standards. I shrugged, because that was fair. When you've got a population of randomly spawning werewolves amongst a mortal populace, they were going to come in with mortal ideas and gender politics in the United States had only really evolved in the last 20 years. And even that was being generous to describe it. Whatever traditions the Fairmount Park werewolves had started with had probably been amended, warped, twisted, argued, built, and unbuilt all over the place as people had joined over a period of... centuries. No one chooses to become a werewolf after all, and figuring out what to do with it once you have it is no easy task. It was something I hadn't really thought about before. After all, I'd only encountered an organized werewolf pack before through Derek Bald very recently. I was in new territory, to be sure. The one to my left said, I am Jermaine the Unruly. The one to my right said, I am Carlos the Ruthless. I looked between them. They're werewolf... THE werewolf look, really, amongst every werewolf I'd met so far, could be described as shredded, tall, hairy, and powerful. These two were no exception. Jermaine was pale with bright red hair, Carlos was tall, dark, and handsome, and together they'd make March and April on the fireman's calendar if they were in that line of work. I nodded and I said, Well, you know who I am stared at each other for a long moment. They more stared down at me. Damn, they were big. Finally, I said, So fellas, let me be clear. I just want to know who moved the statue. That's it. I don't care about your deal in Fairmount Park. None of this. I motioned to the forested areas, the boathouse, the river, and the street near us. None of this is my problem. To exchanged a look. Germain the Unruly said, Let me be clear in return. We were given a great deal to aid in this endeavor. We will not betray our partners. And that meant something. Whoever had taken the statue had bribed the werewolves. And considering they had felt all kinds of weak in the aftermath of the death of Maria the Conqueror, it must have been something earth-shattering. So I made a leap of logic. I said, I don't know a lot about your rights of secession, but boy howdy, I suspect they'd take more than, what, two weeks since the death of Maria the Conqueror? You made a deal, took a payoff. And whatever they gave you in exchange for letting them move the statue put you at the top of the pack, gave you the edge. So much, one of you pushed bald out, took control, and all you have to do is keep your mouths shut. Have I got the right of it? And that 
was when Carlos the Ruthless grabbed me by the shoulders and threw me through a boathouse window. End of part one. Dee Dee Groove, Twisted, Misuse, Hitman, Midnight Tale, Acid Trumpet, Prelude, and Action are all by Kevin McLeod from filmmusic.io with a CC by 4.0 Creative Commons license. Please support the official creators. Next time, Maid of Orleans, Part 2. This has been a Foam Lined Box production.